You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 111 of Belaboured. Today, we break down the NLRB's ruling that graduate student workers at private universities are, well, workers. But first, the news. Back in the 1990s, when anti-sweatshop activism was the highest profile labor organizing going, Nike's reputation took quite a hit when workers in its Vietnamese factories told their stories of horrific working conditions. Journalists dug into the story of Nike's overseas factories, and its then-CEO, Phil Knight, admitted that the company had become, quote, synonymous with slave wages forced overtime and arbitrary abuse. In response, the company promised to invest in social responsibility and hired media advisors to give it a new, clean, friendly image. The Nike Foundation, funded by Nike and other foundations, created the Girl Effect campaign, arguing that empowering girls, keeping them in school, and liberating them from oppressive cultural customs will, quote, break the cycle of global poverty. But a new report from Maria Hengeveld, published at Slate with support of the Nation Institute Investigative Fund, and this is where I disclaim that I am a Nation Institute reporting fellow but had nothing to do with this story, shows that Nike's girl effect doesn't extend to the women and girls who work in its factories. Their stories highlighted something the girl effect campaign is silent about, the importance of a living wage, Hengeveld writes. The workers that she spoke with, women between the ages of 23 and 55, though Nike admits to employing girls as young as 16 for certain work, they lived in squalid conditions and reported pay so low that they could not support their families. Four of them had been laid off after a factory building burned down. They said they would need to earn between three and four times their current salaries to be secure. Women talked about arbitrary punishments, intimidation and humiliation by managers, and the lack of reliable childcare. Three of them mentioned managers throwing shoes at workers. Pregnant workers had their daily hours lowered, but not their work quotas, resulting in more, not less, pressure to produce. When 20,000 workers at a factory where Nikes are made went on strike in 2008, at least seven organizers were fired. These are not conditions limited to Nike, of course, but in the face of the company's major PR effort, it seems that, well, as ever, corporations are much more interested in burnishing their public image than, you know, actually improving conditions in their workplaces and practicing what they preach when it comes to empowering women and girls. We will put a link to the story and everything else you hear about today up on the Descent website. Millennials may be endowed with the blessings of youth today, but they are cursed to the environmental hazards of tomorrow. According to a new report from the think tank Demos, about $8.8 trillion is the so-called price tag of being young in a time of climate change. To put things in perspective, the student debt burden facing the country right now is about $1 trillion. Their study estimates that a median income worker who graduated college in 2015 is set to lose over, quote, $126,000 in income over her lifetime and $187,000 in wealth if the income were to be saved and invested, if politicians do nothing to deal with climate change. This, of course, compounds many other economic woes dragging down millennials in the more immediate term, including the damage of the Great Recession, unraveling of social safety net programs, student debt, of course, and the unsustainable cost of childcare and housing. On top of climate disaster, Demos estimates millennials will be burdened with baggage from the recession that totals about $112,000 for a typical college-educated young worker's household. If you're a millennial who became a parent last year, congratulations, but you'll have to prepare your kid for an even bleaker future as the environment worsens. An infant who grows up to earn the median income later in life will lose approximately $357,000 of that income over her lifetime and approximately $581,000 in wealth if the income were to be saved and invested. So aside from acute disasters like Katrina and Sandy, there is long-term economic erosion that will track us throughout our lives and well into future generations. They include extreme water stress due to combined effects of overconsumption and climate-related water supply shrinkage, climate-related health impacts like heat waves and increased rates of infectious disease, and declining agricultural productivity due to natural disasters, pestilence, and other fun things like that related to climate disruption. Luckily, the stakes are equally high for using climate change as a path to something positive, as a way to provide economic uplift for millennials. 
Demos estimates that if policymakers move forward with a climate agenda that is in line with the Paris Climate Treaty of last year, that could potentially add about $800 billion in new investment by 2050, and approximately $290 billion to GDP, uh, saving families in total about $41 billion on energy bills. That could go a long way towards stabilizing a household that's otherwise dealing with soaring costs of living, trying to pay for childcare, or holding tens of thousands of dollars in college debt. However, the just transition principle also needs to be applied here so that the worst-off millennials, those in poor communities of color, are not further marginalized or left behind by ecological innovation. This involves global mobilization of labor and community against corporations that will inevitably seek to exploit the environment, even in the context of so-called green capitalism and corporate-led renewable energy growth. Demos notes that, quote, clean energy investments in communities with more fossil fuel pollution will have proportionally greater health benefits and generate more health savings per dollar invested. So while millennials are saddled with the environmental burden left to them by past generations, they can also use climate change as an opportunity to reverse that crisis and turn it into a sort of win-win deal, helping tackle social problems through the decarbonization of our economy. Back in May, in episode 103, we heard from Tim Vogt of the United Auto Workers about the lockout of Honeywell workers in Green Island, New York, and South Bend, Indiana. Well, those workers are still locked out, and I caught up with Tim to get the latest on how things are going. How long have you guys been locked out now? It is day 114. one fourteen. So tell me, how are things going? How is, how is morale among the, the workers? Morale is surprisingly well. Uh, we're getting all sorts of, of uh, support from all different organizations and labor and, and community support. So it's uh, financially doing well. Uh, we are scheduled to meet uh, with the company on September 12th, or excuse me, we're traveling September 12th. We're meeting on the 13th, 14th, and 15th. We have reached out to the company before, but I guess there were some issues with uh, them being on vacation. You know, there was a couple other things to where they couldn't meet us. And then they come out with this press release that said the union is finally reaching out to us to bargain. Finally? I mean, really? (laughs) Yeah. So will this be the first time that you you go back to the table since they locked you out? No, no. We've been back uh, two other times prior to that. We've submitted some uh, uh, proposals Mm that were rejected. It seems to be the norm. We'll, we'll, we'll go out to bargain with them. We'll put out a, uh, a proposal, and it'll get rejected because it's not part of their plan. What do they want to basically get you to agree to? Well, everything that they initially wanted is still what they're asking for. Anything beyond that, they've been rejecting. Yeah. Um, the high-deductible high, uh, health care plan, which is ridiculous. I don't know how anybody could afford that. As a matter of fact, I know quite a few horror stories from people that uh, yeah. have had accidents and, and stuff that are just so far behind the medical bill that's not funny. But uh, no more retiree health care. Yeah. Uh, no more pensions. Insufficient uh, wage increases. Uh, I think it was like 2 2.5% for three of the five years. That's, that's nothing that's going to help us out financially. Um, no more cost of living allowances. No more supplemental unemployment benefits. Um, and this is coming from a company who says that uh, that they're you know they they never said that they were broke actually uh, they're doing very well financially right so. yeah and so tell me about what it's been like out there I know that um, I've seen uh, some some friends of mine have, have joined you on the picket line up there um, but tell me yeah what it's like yeah. you know day by day over there for some it's starting to turn into a picnic you know we have some games over by the tent that people you know some lawn games that people have been doing but uh, uh, morale is pretty. It's pretty good. It seems like every day that the company keeps us out, the more upset our people get at the company. And it, it's only making, it's only strengthening their resolve to stay out there. So, but the, you know, we've gotten a lot of support uh, a few days out of the week uh, from other labor organizations. So we got a good crowd out there. Yeah. Uh, things are going pretty well. Leading up to, to going into bargaining, is there anything people can do if they want to um, support if they're not in the Albany area? Financially, we could always uh, use money to uh, for our strike fund or for our lockout fund. You know, one of the biggest things we need, of course, is people walking the line. We've only got 40 people working at Bendix or working at our facility. So. Yeah. And keeping a line is, is rather difficult sometimes, but with the help of, uh, of other people walking, it's, it's been great. 
That was Tim Vogt with the UAW workers locked out at Honeywell in Green Island, New York. So on the heels of the historic NLRB ruling, which we'll talk about in a minute, Yale University, a historic battleground of the graduate student worker movement, is finally mobilizing to hold an official vote to unionize. Although GISO, which represents the graduate workers and is an offshoot of Unite Here, has been organizing grad students for about two decades now, it has long campaigned to unionize with the aim of getting the administration to voluntarily recognize the union. So far, that has not happened, and they are now moving forward with the formal unionization process through an NLRB election. And now that they have a clear legal path in front of them, they are giving Yale a run for its money with an unprecedented 10 proposed bargaining units for Local 33. It's a strategy to preempt the administration from squabbling over the parameters of the collective bargaining unit, um, though ultimately they will be seeking one sort of unified contract agenda during negotiations. Uh, The ruling comes after many years of stalwart grassroots organizing across New Haven, and Unite Here has a long history of struggle and negotiation with Yale and the corporate institutions that it controls throughout the New Haven community. The city's black majority has managed over the years to secure union representation at key workplaces across Yale's campus, and the Graduate Workers Union would help move it towards so-called wall-to-wall campus organizing. There are huge challenges ahead, though, and I spoke with one of the leading organizers of GSO, Aaron Greenberg, about the fight going forward as they move towards an election and how this micro-unit strategy is going to work. So we were thrilled to see the NLRB uh, restore the organizing rights for graduate employees at private universities. It's a really exciting moment, and uh, we didn't waste any time. Um, Just six days later, we filed for NLRB elections to certify our union, and we're we're really thrilled, and this is a, a moment 26 years in the making since our organizing campaign here at Yale began. You... I guess, could have gone the Columbia students route and actually tried to litigate this rather than seeking to pressure Yale to voluntarily recognize your union, uh, which is the route that you have been taking for many years. Exactly. Um, Every day for the last two and a half years that our campaign has been public, the university administration could have approached us and started talks about a fair and collegial process. Uh, They have not. We still look forward to speaking with them and working that out, but uh, we have a clear path to victory with our petitions filed, and we look forward to the NLRB process working its way through the courts and then uh, us getting and winning an election and, you know, getting and winning a great contract that can address the issues that our members deal with every day. Your petitions are unique in the sense that there are 10 of them, uh, which is kind of a contrast to what the Columbia students had proposed. They have a pretty big collective bargaining unit that even has an opportunity for undergraduate workers to organize. Um, You are going for, I guess, a more um, contoured approach where you have 10 different contracts. Um, How are they arranged and why did you choose this route, which seems more complex? So, you know, we we do our work department by department, and we're really excited that we'll have an election process that reflects that natural organization of of the work. You know, our hope is also that by filing in each department separately and starting with a department where the desire to unionize is overwhelmingly clear, there won't be any question about wasteful legal gamesmanship and unnecessary, unnecessary delays from the administration. I mean, we're talking about 10 departments across the university in in every division and every kind of discipline with lots of different kinds of work that get done. And these are departments where between 75 and 100% of grad employees are members of Local 33 already. So we really hope that the university administration will respect the the democratic will of of these departments and the members in these departments who've made clear time and time again that they want the chance to vote and they, they want to vote for a union. So we submitted petitions in, in 10 departments. Each petition, will the NLRB will have to decide how to process it. They have not gotten back to us yet, but all the petitions state clearly that the, um, the employees in those departments seek to be represented by Local 33. So it's up to the NLRB to decide how to make that happen, but our desire is for all of the 
uh, employees covered in, in these 10 departments to be covered within Local 33 and to negotiate one contract. Okay. I think that's within our interest and the interest of, of the university, hopefully the legal process as well. Do you think that the way that your approach and Columbia's approach going forward as more private universities start to try to get graduate student unions, they might choose one or the other depending on how their academic programs are arranged? Or Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's just really exciting. Like Monday when we filed our petitions, I learned that morning that the campaign for graduate employees at Boston College had just launched. And we're just seeing every week, you know, Boston College, Duke, lots of new campaigns come along. I think what's exciting about us pioneering this strategy, which um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, but it's based on a 2011 NLRB decision called specialty healthcare, where the NLRB announced that upon request from the union, it would order representation elections in the smallest appropriate unit, even if a larger unit would also be appropriate. And this is a strategy that's been upheld upon appeal, most recently even this month, in a case called FedEx Freight. And as far as we know, we are the first union campaign in the, in the academic sector to use this strategy. It's fairly new, though it's one that uh, was really brought to us by the Council of our, of our International Union, Unite, Unite Here, which represents hotel workers and gaming workers across the country. And they have used this strategy successfully in the last few years, and we're really excited to, to share it with uh, the academic labor movement. What are you hoping to finally get to bargain on uh, now that everyone's chomping at the bit to get to a contract? Sure. So time and time again in the last two and a half years, uh, we've made clear that there are real issues that our members deal with on a daily basis. So secure teaching and funding, equity for people of color and for women, access to mental health care, affordable child care. I mean, there are so many stories that bring our members to want a union. And it's been really inspiring in the last, I guess, seven days, six, eight days since the, since the NLRB decision to, to see how moved people are to fight on, on those issues and to, to fight on, on everything that we've been doing the last two and a half years in our campaign. That was Aaron Greenberg of GSO talking about organizing at Yale. And now we hear from Lindsay Dayton. She is one of the leading organizers with the Graduate Workers of Columbia. We last spoke with her in 2015 and 2014 while she was busy organizing her collective bargaining unit. And now that the NLRB ruling has finally come down, she's here to talk to us about it. So explain the ruling that came down from the National Labor Relations Board and um, in what way the board agreed with your uh, petition? So the ruling that came down from the board last week was really wonderful. Um, it overturned the Brown decision, which actually overturned an earlier ruling by the board. Um, and so basically the board went back to its initial ruling that grad workers, A's and RAs, are indeed workers who are supposed to organize and form a union. And you know, there were a little, there were a lot of sort of special cases and tricky positions um, that we had to push for, and we won all of those. So the fact that TAs and RAs should be included in the, the same unit, um, undergraduate TAs, people who are on training grants, which is a special form of grant, um, basically everyone that we asked for, we got included in the unit, which is wonderful. What were the specific claims in the petition or the arguments that you put forward that kind of, uh, you know, allowed for the overturning of Brown? Like, what exactly did they acknowledge about your labor situation? Well, I mean, really, for us, it's very straightforward. The work that we do for the university is indeed work. And earlier, you know, the universities, including Columbia, had made the, the point or, or tried to argue the point that um, we were more students than we were workers and that our being students actually encompassed any work that we did teaching or doing research at the university. And, you know, our argument was very straightforward, which is that, yes, of course we're students. You know, of course we are graduate students who are seeking degrees at the university. That's why we work here at all. 
Um, but the fact that we're students doesn't mean that we're not doing work for the university, that we're not teaching undergraduates, that we're not teaching master's students, that we're not doing research in labs um, for patentable technologies, you know, that Columbia holds the patent for. You know, basically, like, all of the work that the university does, or a great deal of it, we are involved with. And so it was a little bit of a cynical argument, actually, made, um, that we weren't workers. And it was very easy for us to argue our case because all we had to do was state what it is that we do when we come in and work every day. And explain um, how you sort of propose the bargaining unit. I understand that the unit that you propose, the way it's structured, it would actually allow for um, research assistance as well as undergrads. And so talk about those categories of workers and um, sort of the, the community of interest that you helped present. Well, we've always said that the union isn't a missionary society. We're not, you know, bringing the union to other people. Uh, really, the union started at what I have started calling unhappy stories among grad students who would go to happy hours that were organized by their departments and then complain uh, about, you know, healthcare or not getting paid on time or not getting paid enough or having sort of arbitrary decisions made that they had no way to appeal. And, you know, I guess you could think about the union as sort of slowly expanding the number or type of people who are involved in those unhappy hours um, and actually you know, building, organizing on those experiences that we had um, working at the, the university. So from the beginning, we knew that TEA's RAs would both be included because, you know, we had reached out and talked to both TAs and RAs um, and we had similar concerns. And um, with undergraduates, it's a little bit different, but, you know, we thought like, well, if they're doing work, um, as TAs that is similar to the work that we're doing as TAs and sometimes working alongside us, it doesn't make sense for them to not be in the unit. And even if they're, the reason why they're working might be a little bit different than the reason why we're working, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they still deserve to have protections and more importantly, you know, the right to have a say in their working conditions. So this ruling um, overturns the precedent that was set in 2004 with Uh, Brown, and that was itself a reversal of an earlier position. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk about how the board has kind of wavered over the years, and also going forward, how are you sure that, you know, this won't reverse itself again, and what will you do then? Well, listen, there's there's nothing about U.S. labor law that I feel like I can be certain of, but I, I feel like if we you know, as we have, if we organize around the logic of the work that we're doing on the ground and the rights that we think we deserve, then, you know, ultimately the law will follow. And sometimes that will take years. And in our case, we're lucky that it took a few years of organizing to overturn that. Um, And, you know, I'm hoping that the decision that the court or that the board made before this one, so the Brown decision, was an exception and that that was the political exception because the board, the, the National Labor Relations Board is really supposed to support organizing among workers. They're really supposed to encourage it, not to deter it. And um, that's a really important piece of, of the decision is saying, you know, that it's the role of the board to actually support people who are working, you know, forming unions or at least their right to choose whether or not they want a union. Um, and the board really went against that in the Brown decision. So this decision was about graduate workers at private universities. I was a union member when I was at a public university. Uh, Michelle, I believe, is still a union member at a a public university. (laughs) Former, Um, former. Former? You're not in a fellowship anymore. Oh, okay. Well, so we we both, right, at public um, graduate programs, we were both in unions. Um, so right. how has this argument gone that the same work is going is happening in public universities and is, you know, not destroying the universe, but if it was allowed at private yeah. universities, it would somehow destroy the fabric of higher education? Um, and how does this new ruling sort of dismantle that logic? Well, you know, I haven't actually heard any logic behind why Okay, logic is a strong word. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, the reason why there's a difference is because public and private sector unions are, you know, have their own sort of avenues of law. Right. Um, and so decisions that are made in the one for public universities in this case are, do not, are not bearing on the other in private right. universities. But I will say that, you know, I've, I've been there since the beginning of this union and a big motivation for organizing on top of our own working conditions at Columbia was the, the sort of right to work shift that was happening in Midwestern states and the decision mm -hmm. that some of us made to attend Columbia instead of places like Rutgers or the University of Wisconsin, you know, which have really wonderful or have had really wonderful um, programs, but, uh, you know, where, where we were worried about the sort of the threat to work um, dismantling the, the, what it was like to be a grad student there, the, the working life there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, uh, you know, this division between public and private has been, you know, disadvantageous for both. And I'm actually really excited for grad workers to come together as a movement national, nationwide across those boundaries, which don't make sense, um, except to the illogic of the law. And to really support each other in better working conditions across the board. To continue on that sort of line of thought, I guess, at elite private schools like Columbia and Yale in particular, the administrations have kind of relied on that elitism to stifle these union drives, that like unions yeah. are for other people and the, for the working class, but not the, uh, the soon to be privileged uh, graduate students. And at the same time, they argue that again, that those elite students are, are too privileged to need a union. Um, and you talk about how these arguments have cropped up in your organizing and how this ruling helps um, counter them? Well, I mean, I think the organizing is actually speaks directly against that because the fact that we have a really strong majority of support yeah. among grad workers, it just goes to show that there are conditions on the ground that we don't think are, you know, are, are that we didn't expect to find at an Ivy League university, let's say. Mm, yeah. um, but I'll also say that, you know, how privileged we are or not is really besides the point. Yeah. We are workers. We do work for the university. We create wealth for the university. And we decided that we wanted and needed a union. It doesn't really matter, you know, if we're privileged or not compared to other workers or whatever. It's that basic right that we're upholding, and that could be the end of that conversation. I think. Uh, I think that we need to make case that we're paupers or beggars, and certainly because you know none of us went to grad school to become millionaires. Right. Um, that's not. That wasn't what was behind it, that decision. Um, you know, we didn't expect to like save money or pay off loans while we were in grad school. But I think that there's you know a difference between like a literal and a figurative battle of poverty setting aside the so-called logic of trying to force graduate students to take a vow of penury before they qualify for basic labor rights is sort of getting it a little bit backwards, I think. Right. So in the media coverage of this decision, um, it's kind of intersected with another issue area that we've seen debated on in higher education, which is this idea of academic freedom, right? Or academic freedom somehow being more under threat today than it has been in previous years. Can you talk about what unions can or cannot do to your relationship with an institution with respect to academic freedom and sort of clarify what the parameters are and how a union might even enhance or protect academic freedom in some way? Sure. You know, I think about it, and I think you know, different people have different ways of looking at this, is that the work that we're doing for the university, even if, even as research assistants, where we're, you know, our own research is tied up with the research that we're doing for RPIs, that mm -hmm. um, that work, you know, and its conditions can be separated, even in, even if it is in complicated ways from, you know, the research and the academic kind of contribution that we're making. And right now, it's all a muddle. And it makes it a very, you know, the, the basic working conditions we have to sort of navigate on a daily basis in, in some very political and overly political. Um, and I think that actually unions can only support academic freedom and bolster it by sort of taking care of those working conditions and putting them not outside the realm of politics, but in a realm of sort of transparent politics. 
so that you're not negotiating necessarily directly with your advisor or with your PI or even with your department, but with the university that's employing you. So it's sort of, you know, the Columbia University has spent tons of money hiring dean after dean after dean, administrator after administrator after administrator. And I think the union is, is kind of saying like, okay, you hired all these well, you're paying them a lot of money. Now let's put them to work and, and create an actual logical system where the, all of these administrative issues that we're facing um, or challenges that we're facing, we're dealing with, you know, the administration instead of with our advisors and the people, the faculty members have to personally intervene to solve problems like late pay or, you know, faulty healthcare coverage or sexual harassment, right. um, any of those issues. Mm-hmm. NYU so far is the only school that had voluntarily recognized the union, I think. And in many ways, that is, of course, far less contentious than a traditional NLRB process. Why do you think that administrations are so invested in fighting the unions? And do you hope that that might change in the wake of this ruling? I I don't I don't believe that it will change. Yeah. Um, I think for a couple of reasons. You know, one is that. I think they have all the power right now to determine unilaterally the conditions of our labor, and they rely on our labor heavily. Um, this is an Ivy League institution, and a great percentage of classes are taught you know, by adjuncts, by contingent faculty members, one kind or another. Um, and, you know, I think that they're very cognizant of the fact that they rely on this kind of contingent labor in order to make the university run. Um, and run, you know, quote unquote, efficiently, which gets to my second point, which is that, you know, there's a kind of business logic that has really seeped into universities and colleges that doesn't make sense for a nonprofit whose, you know, whose goal is to produce quality education and and quality research. Right. Uh, You don't need to be operating at the same kind of profit margin as, you know, competitive businesses. And I think that they're just like, those are the real third party, that's the real third party that's intervening in our education and threatening uh, academic freedom, which is like the trustees who kind of bring in this logic. Um, and the presidents, the university presidents who are hired exactly because they will um, sort of still sway to this kind of rhythm. And, you know, I actually was in a meeting with um, the dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences and the vice dean, Andrea Solomon, and um, we were arguing on behalf of a woman who, you know, who had sort of her, had a year cut um, from the time that she was allowed to remain in GSAS after, you know, horrific medical malpractice. Mm-hmm. Um, and all we were asking for was that she get another year, not that she get another year of funding, but just that she get another year, you know, to be allowed to stay at the university um, in order to go on her job search after the horrible medical malpractice had basically robbed her of three years of her graduate life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even possibly like the, the possibility of having children. And this the vice dean, Andrea Solomon, just said at once, like, you know, well, this is just not good business practice. You know, the idea that we would come in and, and ask this and argue for this for a student. And I and I couldn't believe, you know, like why why would it be, be why would we be adhering to standard business practice? You know, this is a university; it's not a business. Her job is to support students. Right. It's not to keep an eye to profit margins um, and to keep tight discipline, work discipline of one sort or another. And so it it really was amazing to me because I said to her like, well, this is a business, the university, and she sneered. <laughs> You know, like something that I think a lot of us sort of expect from the universities, mm-hmm. you know, it might seem naive, right, that we come in and we expect that this, these higher goals of education and research would be upheld. But I actually think that, that those are things we should fight for and those are ideals that we should hold on to, even if, you know, over the course of our time we have become more skeptical about whether or not the university is able to fulfill them on their own, you know, I think organizing unions, having a strong organized student body is a way of holding universities to democratic practices and ideals, even when they themselves are looking for a business for models. Yeah, I think that what you're saying here is is really important. We've talked so much about the sort of corporatization of the university, 
Um, there was a report earlier this year about how, you know, these elite universities are basically, you know, giant hedge funds with a university attached. So, yeah, talk a little bit more about sort of the way that these universities really are looking at themselves as businesses and not institutions of, you know, for the public good. Well, I mean, I think we all know the way that are run, right? It's like with an eye toward the, the profit line and or profit margin and just thinking about expenses, expenses, expenses. But I think what's unique about the way that the universities are doing this is that they're doing this behind the cloak of a crisis in higher education where they're saying that there's actually less labor needed. And that's absolutely untrue. You know, even when people tell you like, oh, higher education, there are no jobs. That's not true. There are plenty of jobs. Um, it's just that there aren't good jobs, there aren't stable jobs, there aren't secure right. jobs. There's more contingent labor than there's ever been before. And even at, you know, quote unquote, elite universities, right. the classes are being taught by adjunct labor or faculty that have no hope of gaining tenure in their time here. Um, and I think that that's the real disservice, right? I mean, we're, we're used to to by now, like everything being run by a business and that logic sort of seeping into everything. But the fact that that's being, you know, being sort of propagated behind this lie of, oh, there are just too many of you privileged, elite graduate students, you know, and that's the real problem. There are too many people who are running away from real work. Um, that's not true. It's absolutely untrue. And I think many of us, you know, many of the grad students who organized around the work that we do now, um, really have light to the future and are thinking about when we become postdocs, when we become, you know, researchers, when we become adjunct faculty members, you know, what, mm-hmm. what, what is left for us in, in higher education after all this time that we've spent investing in knowledge and investing in this community of higher education. And I think, like, for many of us, the possibility of organizing the university wall-to-wall yeah. You know, all of the contingent labor, and I'm not just talking about, you know, quote unquote academic labor, teaching and research labor. Right. Um, I think that's really the the sort of the thing that gets me up in the morning, you know, the thing that, that, that pulls me into organizing in spite of the time that it takes. And speaking of future organizing, when we last spoke, you were in the middle of an organizing campaign, busy persuading your fellow students um, <laughs> to sign on. And Talk about the issues that you hope to negotiate now that you finally are at this stage where you can actually think about and envision what um, your contract will look like. You know, have the concerns changed over the years? Have they evolved? And I guess what are your key priorities? You know, I have to say, like, it's a really unsatisfactory answer, but I don't know what they are. I mean, I can tell you the issues that I've heard in the departments that I regularly visit on the ground. I can tell you what my own issues have been and, and those of my own department. But the question in front of us is whether or not we think we should have a union. And we've already answered that with a strong majority saying yes. And we have to do that again in the election. And after that election, We'll be able to elect representatives, you know, other grad workers who can speak for us, for our departments, for our sort of different con- like constituencies, and they are the ones who will shape a platform. But for now, like we're not running on a platform; we're running on we're running on democracy. We think that we should have a say in our working conditions, and you know, I, some of the bread and butter issues are of course going to be on the table. Um, but I think, like. Actually having a say in our working conditions, a big piece of it is it will, will bring us something that the contract will support, but, you know, that like will only be one part of, which is the respect that we deserve as workers. Um, and I think that like even more than the bread and butter issues, the health care, the stipends, whatever, the salaries, I think that's really what, what grad students at Columbia and grad workers at Columbia deserve and, and why we support them so heartily. In terms of the state of labor democracy at Columbia, can you talk about the, you know, how unionizing has been going in Columbia and the campus community writ large? What other workers are unionized there and, um, you know, how have they been able to improve their situations over time? I mean, there's no doubt in my mind because I've sat in on those labor negotiations with um, different groups of workers, including, you know, the banquet hall workers at Faculty House who have a Unite Here contract. Um, 
that Columbia is definitely an anti-union university. Right. Um, and, you know, they have Oscar Rose, which is a big anti-labor law firm, um, to fight us at the board. Um, you know, so it's, it's very clear that they take this kind of business illogic hard line against unions. Um, but we have the support of Local 2110 of the UAW, which is an amazing um, local that organizes a lot of color workers and academic workers across the city, including at NYU. Um, and, you know, they have just decades and decades of experience winning good contracts from Columbia. And they're very well respected by other workers on campus, including those who are members of other unions. So I'm excited about, you know, being able to, you know, bring in a huge number of, of new sort of co-unionists into Local 2110 because it will mean that the, the you know, support staff at Barnard and at Columbia, at Union Theological Seminary, and at Teachers College, all of whom are members of 2010, will have the support of the grant team behind them, and we will have their support as well. Um, and so finally, right, you've already been sort of talking about this the whole way through, but just to, to sort of wrap it up, how does this all connect up to the fact that we've seen an increase in organizing on um, college campuses, increase in adjunct organizing, um, and now this decision? Um, how does all this connect up and why now? You know, I, I think like if you were to ask, First ask, it's the crew that normally writes the articles on this thing, this stuff, they would say like, oh, it's because, you know, austerity and, you know, something's just in the air type of thing, right? But mm -hmm. I have to tell you, it's a lot of hard work. And I, and there are, I know, I know some of the connections between the campaigns that are emerging now, yeah. um, but I don't know all of them. But even my knowledge of those connections, I can tell you, it's like just years and years and hours and hours of work yeah. um organizing isn't easy even if you don't have a bias to go up against and usually you do so i i have to say like for me why now is is that like we you know all of us have taken the initiative and we've built a community and we've started to build a movement and I think it's connected to a lot of other things that are happening, like Fight for 15 and Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. um, it was definitely connected to Occupy, I think. Um, but really, it's because there are people who are learning how to organize and who are organizing each other and passing on that amazing knowledge of how to build collective power. And, you know, this is just one small door that has opened, and it's maybe not the most leftist or most revolutionary door, but be wonderful, you know, as like a a, a child of the 80s yeah. to, to have grown up and seen like all of these doors closing one by one to see one door open. Um, yeah. And I hope it's just the beginning. That was Lindsay Dayton of Columbia University talking about the NLRB's ruling on graduate worker status. We will put links to more on the subject at the Descent website. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. At the risk of dragging you back to electoral politics, apologies in advance, this week, I'm going back in time a few weeks and talking about Molly Neffel's excellent piece at In These Times in Philadelphia Progressive Education Organizers Fight Disaster Capitalism. Molly was in Philly for the DNC, which she aptly describes as Democrats, quote, attempting to present themselves as simultaneously progressive enough to be the party of racial, gender, and economic justice, but conservative enough to be welcoming to Republicans turned off by Donald Trump. There's no better example of this, she notes, than Dem's relationship to unions and public education. She writes, 
quote, the battle over public education is in large part a battle over labor, and there's no better illustration of that than Philadelphia. In 2013, the city's school reform commission, which is appointed, not elected, closed roughly 10% of the city's schools, laid off almost 4,000 teachers and other school staff, and in 2014 terminated the teacher's contract to save on health insurance costs. They remain without a contract to this day, end quote. There is a reform caucus now within the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers, as there is in so many of the nation's teachers' unions these days, and as we've covered many times on this podcast. And in Philly, they've been organizing, even without a contract, alongside members of the community. While Democrats for so-called education reform met in Philly and charter school advocate Cory Booker spoke at the DNC, Antoine Little Sr., a member of AFSCME and public school parent, noted that public sector unions have historically been a place where black people could get a decent job. Little is one of is a member of the 215 People's Alliance, a group organizing around public schools, not just as places for a decent job, although that's certainly part of it, but as part of the social contract and the very idea of the public and public good. While Hillary Clinton won endorsements from the major teachers unions, these organizers are calling for something far more progressive than the Democrats' platform. The popularity of Bernie Sanders and the idea of socialism among young people, Raphael Randall of Youth United for Change tells Molly, lays the groundwork for reasserting the importance of public spaces, public schools, and idea of the public good. Of course, it's hard to do anything when your rights are basically taken away and uh, you have no democratic recourse to running schools. So as ever, the fight over public schools becomes a fight for basic democratic rights. We will, of course, keep you updated on what's going on in Philadelphia public schools, anywhere else. And if you are a teacher in Philadelphia public schools or a student or the parent of a student, we would love to hear from you. My pick for this week is Cowboy Class Wars by Mark A. Laus. It appears in Jacobin, and he talks about the real Wild West, which is actually perhaps a little more civilized than we give it credit for. He begins the scene from March 23rd, 1883 in the Texas Panhandle, and it's the scene of a strike, one of the first major work stoppages by a unit of cowboys. When we think of cowboys, we think of rugged individualism, that robust can-do attitude that has characterized America's creation myth. And in our imagination, the cowboy is almost by definition a true loner. Think the Marlboro Man. But beginning with that strike, Klaus explains the history of cowboys is one of a social movement and a subculture. And in turn, they became a form of class struggle that helped spur many of the changes that took place on America's social landscape during westward expansion. He starts with the long-forgotten strike as a sign of how workers, read cowboys, were routinely mistreated and they moved collectively to defend their rights. He writes, as legend has it, quote, their foreman approached the ranch's general manager and demanded that he pay the cowboys as they worked rather than as a lump sum at the end of the year. That is, they demanded to be paid real wages rather than piecework. After they were rebuffed, the cowboys, quote, turned their horses, gave a cowboy yell, waved their stetson in the air, and made a beeline for the headquarters. And so they went on strike. It's a prescient moment in American history. It was when the West was not yet fully industrialized. In many ways, it was still a pretty wild place. But people were grasping for economic security and they were banding together to seek a sense of community and a sense of structure to bring to a relatively lawless landscape. Laos writes, the strike serves as a useful counterpoint to the notion that the American West was a vast expanse, that entrepreneurs and self-made men bent to their will, unimpeded by social conflict or government intervention. We often forget just how economically sophisticated and multifarious the process of Western settlement actually was. First of all, it involved massive government subsidies via the railroad system, subsidized homesteading as the foundation of agricultural expansion, and of course, other major targeted infrastructure investments that allowed cities to develop, allowed for major trade hubs to thrive, and paved the way for manufacturing across the Midwest. There's a dark side of this as well, obviously, namely that westward expansion was a genocidal act. It involved the expansion of slavery, as well as the mass killings of indigenous peoples, and various other forms of displacement and abuse 
as well as environmental disruption as capitalists sought to exploit the land and create new markets for consumption and labor. And all that, of course, gave rise to the cowboy class. Destroying all those tribal communities opened up vast expanses of land for ranchers from the east, and they quickly recruited legions of young, skilled workers to work this huge region, centering on Dodge City, Kansas. Last writes that for the ranchers based around Dodge City, quote, the land was theirs for the taking. In a process redolent of the enclosures of pre-capitalist England, the state had violently converted the common land into private land by dispossessing its inhabitants. But now they had to protect their holdings from the rebellious cowboys. And the cowboys were pretty tough. They operated in an incredibly ferocious competitive environment. Cattle was property, and unbranded cattle were treated like pirates' booty. And contrary to stereotype, these were not lone self-made men. They were workers bound in a tight division of labor. They were, quote, left to work grueling weeks, unleavened by any realistic hopes for advancement. Sometimes they worked 108 hours in a week. Quote, at the same time, the nature of their labor demanded teamwork and solidarity. Teams had to respect and trust each other if they were going to manage the massive herds of cattle they were hired to move. And so by working collectively, they could also bridle collectively against bosses' orders. They could leverage their organizing power with, quote, slowdowns, threats, intimidating behavior, and collective defiance, and yes, strikes. The cowboy golden age was, of course, short-lived because new waves of industrialization quickly swallowed up their trade as ranching grew more industrialized and the work for individual cowboys dried up. But they left an impression on the great frontier. Last elucidates how the West had a distinct labor market in which both capital and the state played key roles. He writes that behind that laissez-faire mythology lay the reliable hand of government, and the West was not a space, however rough and tumble, was permeated by social harmony born of a common expansionist purpose. Class society brought its standards and troubles West with it. While the history often presents those labor struggles of the 19th century as, quote, monolithically urban, workers of all sorts fought for their rights everywhere. So the Wild West was in many ways a class society, it had industries, trades, and workforces that were always churning, always in conflict. And while it conjures up romance and nostalgia these days, one thing we should never remember the West as is a static relic of history. It was always a story of struggle, constantly making and remaking itself. And that is all for this episode of Belabored. Please tweet at us with any story ideas, questions, comments, updates from the labor world at hashtag belabored. You can also email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. This life is hard, so hard I must go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.